www.wernerbrown.org. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. I want to take just a moment to thank Lucy from Surrey, a sustaining member who called in with an additional gift to show support for Doc Dufour and Highway 61, which we just heard. Coming up next, we've got Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, over the last year, Maine Community Foundation, which also um, helps uh, support this, uh, this program, has cast a wide net listening to everyday citizens, local partners, and donors to determine the best ways to improve the quality of life for all Maine people. And this morning, we're delighted to have Steve Rowe, who is president uh, of Maine Community Foundation, along with Becky Hayes-Buber, who is vice president, uh, um, focusing on community impact. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Glad that you could be with us and and talk a little bit about um, the uh, listening process that you've gone through in the last year to um, kind of assemble some some, uh, new goals and and, and energize the strategies that you've been using. But perhaps each of you could kind of trace your your career path. How did you get to to, uh, Maine Community Foundation? Steve, you've had a um, a career in Maine, in Maine politics. Um, um, Tell us a little bit about that career and how you got to Maine Community Foundation. Okay, well, well, thanks, Ron. It's great to be here this morning. And and, uh, we at the Maine Community Foundation are very proud of our, our, we're very proud of our sponsorship and partnership with WRU Community Radio. Uh, I assumed the presidency of the Maine Community Foundation in September of 2015, so I've been with the organization for about uh, 15 months now. And prior to that, I spent three years uh, in New Hampshire. I was a president of the Endowment for Health, which is a private health foundation in New Hampshire. Uh, I would come back on the weekends to Maine. I never really left Maine, but I worked in New Hampshire for three years. And earlier in my career, uh, I worked uh, in the uh, semiconductor manufacturing. I've worked in the insurance industry. Uh, I've worked as an attorney. Uh, and as you said, I've had uh, uh, several years serving in the state government. Uh, and uh, I served four years in the Maine House of Representatives. And then I served, uh, I, I'm sorry, I've served four terms, eight years. And then I served four terms, eight years as the Attorney General of the state. And uh, so I've had a varied career, but uh, this is a great place to be, and I really enjoy working with the Maine Community Foundation. Oh, great. And Becky, how about you? Um, we've had our paths have crossed in, yes, in the past. Um, you work in Augusta. Tell us a little bit about how you reached um, Maine Community Foundation. Great. Well, again, thank you for having us here today. And I started my professional career as a high school English teacher, English and journalism, and then worked in public relations. And when I moved to Maine, um, I started working for state government and have over 
over 25 years uh, working primarily in commissioner's offices of three departments, education, DHHS, and corrections. And I retired um, and then began working for Maine Health um, Access Foundation for seven years before I joined Maine Community Foundation this summer. So um, most of my work was really looking at systems change and how systems can support uh, families better. So it was a natural transition for me to come to Maine Community Foundation. Mm. Um, I'm just really passionate about what is it that we can do to help children and families and the most vulnerable people among us. And that's very aligned with the foundation's mission. Great. And Steve, perhaps you could help us with kind of some background on what a community foundation is. How did it emerge um, in kind of our system? I think we have had foundations, but they were generally uh, private donors who determined the, the mission of those foundations. Um, when did the, uh, the sense of a community foundation emerge and, and how did, how, when did Maine get on board? Well, it was about, I think, almost 100 years ago uh, when the first community foundation uh, came about in the uh, city of Cleveland. Uh, a community foundation is a nonprofit public foundation uh, with a collection of assets that it uses to serve the public benefit of residents in a, in a geographic area. Uh, that can be in a community or it can be a group of communities. The main community foundation, for example, is a collection of about $430 million of assets and uh, those are used to serve the communities and the people of Maine. Uh, and uh, the Maine Community Foundation was started in 1983 on Mount Desert Island. It was started with a $10 contribution. And 33 years later, that $10 has grown to $430 million, and that one fund has grown to 1,800 funds. Mm. So we're a collection of a lot of different kinds of funds. Uh, obviously, donors have put the money in there, and, and the money is used to support the mission of the foundation, which is to work with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people. And those are important words, quality of life for all Maine people. And do you suppose that that, that notion of a community foundation different than a foundation that um, might have been uh, formed by one philanthropist? Um, what's the difference between those two concepts, do you suppose? Well, a, a, a private foundation is just that. A person can set up a private foundation, and that's usually it's a single endowment uh, and and that person uh, you can have a board of directors in fact a lot of foundations in Maine are private foundations uh, you have usually a more focused purpose uh, but the foundation is responsible for all of the grant making uh, they have to do all of the uh, the tax uh, accounting uh, they have to do the investments uh, what we do we take a lot of that away a lot of the, the funds we have the donor advised funds some of them were private foundations where they closed down the private foundation transferred the assets to the main community foundation we take care of a lot of that stuff we do all the investing very good returns mm. uh, we help with the grant making uh, we file all the reports with the irs so it's a, it's a simplified process to work with the community foundation so you you're providing services to donors and then the other group of course are the recipients of those donors and becky how do you get involved What's what's your relationship to the, the grant-making side? Oh, well, great. Well, we have really, really strong connections with communities across the state, um, and particularly with those nonprofits within those communities. Uh, for example, this year uh, we will have given out about actually over $25 million in grants and scholarships to help people throughout the state. 
And this includes 20 competitive grant programs. Um, and that's in addition to our donor advised funds who also um, give out grants. So um, you can really find a lot more information on our website um, about what specific grants might be available um, as well as other services that we give. But I think one of the other things that we do a lot is provide technical uh, services and technical assistance to nonprofits. And that happens in a lot of different ways. I think one of the strongest things that we do is we're a connector. We're connecting donors' interest with needs in the communities and with groups in the communities that are doing something about those needs. Um, we connect um, communities who are doing similar work with each other so they can learn from each other. Um, we also uh, connect communities with other funders, with government agencies who have similar interests. Um, so we off that connection role is very important to what we do. And then we also administer a really large education program. Um, in fact, just this week, uh, we mailed out $1.5 million in 950 scholarships going to people across the state um, who are wanting to further their education. And that's great because they're our workforce of the future. In fact, many of them are our current workforce as well. So That notion of, of scholarships, um, again, you administer lots of people's um, donors' desires to mm -hmm. give to the future, and those scholarship programs are important. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's not just the scholarships. Our director of our education initiatives is also very involved with uh, many statewide coalitions that are looking at systems ways of improving opportunities for people who are wanting to go to school. Um, and that includes a lot of adult learners. And um, I think when we talk about our goals, we'll be talking more about that. But we do know that here in the state of Maine that um, we need 158,000 additional people with advanced degrees or certificates. So that's one of the things that we're working on right now with Educate Maine and a whole lot of uh, different organizations and um, educational institutions to see how do we support people, not just with scholarships, but how do we make sure that when the car's not running that morning, they can still get to school or help them with childcare, with transportation, and with balancing maybe a full-time job, with being a parent, with being also a student. So mm. it's looking at that more comprehensive picture. Ron, Ron <laughs> could I just mention one of the things about donors? Um, we do offer donors many advantages, and our staff works with individuals. We work with families, attorneys, and estate and financial planners uh, to design gift plans for donors uh, that meet their financial means and also their charitable passions. And sometimes we refer to ourselves as a matchmaker in that we use our, uh, our knowledge of state and local issues uh, to match the interest of donors uh, with the issues they care about and the nonprofit organizations that work in those issue areas. So uh, we, we like to think that we, we're, we're, we bring people together. And uh, as Becky said, we really, we know Maine, we know the communities of Maine. Uh, I like, there's a bunch of C words that, that explain us. One is a connector. Uh, we like to consider ourselves a collaborator, a convener, a catalyst. These are the roles that we play uh, in, in, in taking the resources and matching those up with the needs throughout the state to improve the quality of life for everyone here. 
And it strikes me as that um, kind of reflects a kind of sophistication in the grant-making world that's come in probably the last 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you both have been involved in other grant-making institutions. Do you see that sophistication shifting and changing? What's, what, what, how do you see um, this, this notion of a foundation, a community foundation especially, evolving? Steve? Well, we've evolved. We, as I say, I think that the difference between us and, say, a, a, I mean, you can take a commercial, an, a fidelity or a commercial uh, investment firm. They, they, I mean, they are also a charitable foundation, and you can invest your money. But the difference is we know the state of Maine. Hmm. We have connections. We have over 500 volunteers across the state that work with us. We have funds in 14 of the 16 counties. We're working on the other two. Uh, we really know the state. And donors invest with the Maine Community Foundation because they know that, and we bring to them opportunities for investment. Uh, and so I think that's the difference. That's it. But in terms of sophistication, yes. We have, as I said, 1,800 funds. It's a very a complex organization. If you look at our, the, the gift processing, uh, the grant making, uh, the scholarships we issue, we're, we're always moving money around. But we'd like to think we're more than just grants. Uh, we, we also convene. Uh, we use our public advocacy uh, skills at time. Uh, we raise issues. We invest in research. Uh, we're trying to uh, help people understand the, the problems and also look at possible solutions. So um, we're very proud of the work we do. And Becky, you might want to add to that. I don't know. Well, Becky, maybe say a little bit about those community funds um, the, the, oh, or the county, county funds because yeah. um, we may come back to that too. But this notion that there are a team of, of volunteer advisors in each county that really know the issues and the concerns of that county, and they're helping you make good investments. Yes. Um, I, I like to think of our county funds as kind of those local people who really know the local issues, and they're making local decisions about mm-hmm. those. So as um, Steve said, we now have county funds in 14 of our counties, and we are hoping to be starting um, an additional fund in Sagatahawk this next year. And then um, in the future, we'll also be establishing something for Kennebec County. And those funds are raised in those counties, too. They are, right. yes. Right. Um, so we have county advisory committees, and those are folks who really are kind of our eyes and ears on the ground. They know the county very, very well. Uh, They know who might be interested in supporting with financial gifts, but they also know who are the movers and shakers, who can get things done. Um, And uh, they process, uh, well, sometimes they process more than one competitive grant program, but the one that I think people are most familiar with is our community building grant. And this year, so far, um, we have awarded 163 community building grants, just over a million dollars across those 14 counties. And um, our next deadline for that grant program will be February 15th. Um, And those grants are up to $10,000. If someone's interested in more information, I certainly encourage them to check out our website. Or you may know some people in your county who are on the county advisory committee. 
Great. I'll just remind listeners, they're tuned to Talk of the Town, so we're talking about the higher quality of life for all Maine people, the, the programs and, and uh, work of the Maine Community Foundation. And in the studio with us, you've just heard from Becky Hayes-Buber, who's the Vice President for Community Impact, and then Steve Rowe is with us. He's the President of Maine Community Foundation. Uh, Steve, you've been through a, a, a listening process, really um, uh, kind of triggered by your assuming the, the presidency. Talk about that listening process. Why, why did you feel the need to do that? And then what did you hear? Well, thanks, Ron. Uh, when I arrived on the scene here, the board said that we, we, were, we were prepared uh, to, to start the process of developing a new strategic plan. And Meredith Jones, my predecessor, had done a great job sort of teeing it up. And so I worked with the board and with the staff, with our county advisors, with other people across the state. Uh, we spent uh, over 10 months uh, really uh, meeting with people, listening to people, uh, we sought input from our peers and critical partners, including our donors, leaders of other foundations, uh, numerous for-profit and uh, non-profit businesses across the state, chambers of commerce, uh, governmental and educational institutional leaders. So we just listened to a lot of people, and we asked them, you know, what are the major challenges? Uh, how, how do you see the Community Foundation being a part of, of the solution? What can we do? Where are our greatest strengths? And uh, in what areas should we focus on? Uh, you know, there's, there's a million things we could do. And indeed, we have 1,800 funds, so we're, we're, we're focused in many areas all the time. But are there a few areas that we really ought to go uh, long and, and, and with a focused uh, approach with? And we, uh, we, we did. We heard uh, from the residents. We met. And uh, we came up with five areas that we really are going to be focusing especially on over the next five years and, and possibly ten years. Uh, we decided we should take a longer view. We wanted to apply scale, make some larger commitments. Uh, all of these are partnerships. Uh, we listen to others. And again, the Maine Community Foundation, we can't do anything alone. Mm. It's only with our donors, uh, with the nonprofits, with our peers, other partners as we move forward. Uh, we believe the for-profit business sector is our partner, the nonprofit sector, the government is our partner. Uh, so um, we in put In those five areas? In all five areas, uh, and these five areas, we're, we're going to be uh, trying to help connect dots for people. I always talk about connecting dots and connecting people, mm -hmm. and that's what we do. In terms of dots, cause and effect relationships, if, if you will. So we came up with, uh, there were five areas. If you'd like, we could go yep. over those. Yep. And, Briefly, and, and then we'll, we'll okay. talk about the conference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, the first one was, uh, we talk about human capital development. I want to frame this. Okay. Human capital mm -hmm. is the stock of of skills, uh, the, the, your experience, uh, the creativity, uh, the knowledge that one has that allows them to be successful, whether it's in, in economically and as a citizen in society. We need more human capital in Maine. We have, as you know, only 1.3 million people. We have an older population. Uh, we have a lot of people that are, are disabled in one way because of substance abuse or other issues. We have some, we, there's a lot of challenges. We have a very low birth rate, 36 babies a day are all this born in this state. Right. Um, and, and so we, one of our first goal was that all Maine children receive a healthy start and arrive at kindergarten developmentally prepared to succeed in school and life. Mm. That's important uh, because really a child's earliest experience has shaped the circuitry of their developing brain, and really that sets a trajectory for everything else that happens in life. Mm. And right now about 40% of kids show up at the kindergarten door developmentally unprepared. 
and we have to do better. Uh, and it's a two-generation focus. It's with the parents, not judging parents, but supporting them. So that's our first goal. You want to mention the second goal, uh, Becky? Certainly. The second goal we've talked about a little bit already, and that's the adult learner's goal. And uh, we've worded it as all main people, including adult learners and other non-traditional students, are able to complete a degree or a certificate program to maximize their potential. And um, we give um, $2 million in uh, scholarships, at least a thousand dollar, a thousand scholarships annually. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, we're also looking at how do we provide larger supports and how do we work with all of our partnerships across the state to make certain that no matter where you live, that you can achieve that. So, so we have a good workforce no matter where we are. Mm. Mm. And and each of these goals, Ron, I should mention, we're already doing some work in sure. them. We're yes. just going to raise the, the, the level. But the third goal uh, involves uh, it's it racism. All people of color in Maine will have access to opportunities and life outcomes that are not limited in any way by race or ethnicity. Uh, we've long been home uh, to people of, of, uh, of African, Asian, Native American, Latino, Hispanic descent. Today, more than 85,000 people in Maine I uh, self-identify as other than white, but we have patterns of racism that exist, and they limit access to opportunities and access to resources for people of color. Uh, just an example, we have about 13% of white people who live in poverty, but about 40% of blacks live in poverty, about 36% of Native Americans live in poverty, and about 31% of Latinos do. We know that people of color with some college are twice as likely to be unemployed as their white colleagues. And we know that Native Americans uh, live on average about 15 to 20 years less than whites. I mean, these are facts. And this has to do with, with systemic or structural racism and the, the stressors that result from that. We can talk more about that, but yes. that's goal three. Yeah. Great. And goal four is all older adults in Maine, especially those who are vulnerable, are valued and able to thrive and age in their communities with health independence and dignity mm. and developing programs to support people as we age and I'm among those <laughs> um, is really another area where we have quite a bit of experience the Maine Community Foundation is one of several um, organ several funders I should mm -hmm. say who are part of a tri-state learning community on aging and um, so that links communities across all three states so they can learn from each other. Um, I also sit on a national committee um, on rural aging. So, you know, there's a lot of programs out there for urban areas, but how do we really support people who might be isolated at the end of the road and things like that? And so we're working with grant makers uh, in aging and the Margaret Cargill Foundation on that project. But one thing we know is that over 90% of people who are surveyed say they want to stay in their home and their community and not rely on assisted living or nursing home care, no matter how good that care might be. And so um, we're anticipating that our work here will really focus on how do we make certain that those supports are available for people to be able to do that. And we have so much that that's already going on here in the state of Maine. So um, we're lucky to have really strong partnerships around this goal. Um, I mentioned the Tri-State uh, Learning Community, which if anyone's interested, that website is www.agefriendly, all one word, mm. dot community. You know, people are usually, it's org or com, but this is dot community. 
Um, and then we also have several initiatives that are going with the AAAs across the state and with AARP's age-friendly communities. MEHAF has been supporting thriving in place communities. That's the Maine Health Access Fund? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Acronyms. Um, so we really feel that um, because Maine has the oldest median age in the nation, that we have an opportunity here in Maine to get this right. Mm. And as we're developing strategies, we're going to lead the nation on this. And it's not, it's, um, it's not a problem. This is a real opportunity. And one of the things that we're hearing from folks as we go around um, asking them, how could we make a difference, is we're hearing people say, let's stop messaging about growing older in this negative way we always have been. Let's start thinking about very all the positive things about that for individuals and for our communities. And your fifth goal, Steve? Yeah, the fifth one is di a little different, Ron. It's that entrepreneurial innovation is broadly promoted and practiced in Maine, particularly in our natural resource-based activities. Uh, we know that our state's transitioning from an economy supported primarily by large employers to one driven by smaller entrepreneurial enterprises. And we know that innovation and, and technologically driven advances hold really the promise to maximize uh, the potential of, of new businesses in Maine. Uh, there's a lot of challenges. We know high-speed broadband access is limited in many rural areas across the state. We know many entrepreneurs need access to patient capital and technical support uh, to start and grow businesses. But providing these types of support is essential uh, to encourage the uh, entrepreneurs to stay here uh, and to attract others to come. So those are the five uh, goal areas. I, I want to reiterate again, we already work in these areas, but we're just not saying these are our goals. Now we're putting together what we call a theory of change or a major work plan that we will be using to work with others, and Becky is leading the effort on that. Great. Well, let's. Um, um, one of the, the goals that you mentioned has to do with the institutional racism that mm -hmm. many of us um, um, experience um, and, and perhaps participate in unknowingly. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you've had a, a wonderful recent conference um, uh, and you featured Alan Johnson. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about Alan, and then we're going to hear a, a clip from his, his talk. Well, Alan Johnson is a, a sociologist from Connecticut who, who really, he, he's an author. He speaks and writes about racism, uh, particularly about uh, structural racism or systemic racism and white privilege. Um, and in case the listeners don't know, structural racism, it, racism is really a system uh, which promotes or, 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 or which, in which public policies and institutional practices and cultural representation and other norms work in often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequities. And uh, the, this thing, white privilege, is a term, I know it makes some people uncomfortable, but it, it, it's a system of white privileges that perpetuate racism in our society. Uh, and there was a, a, a uh, on our website we have a lot of information, but an article, we have an article on the website, Unpacking the Invisible Backpack by Peggy McIntosh about white privilege. And she says, uh, she says, I have come to see white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets, which I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I meant I was meant to remain oblivious. And she talks about privileges such as if I, if I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area in which I can't afford and in which I would want to live. I can be pretty sure my neighbors in such a location will be neutral and pleasant to me. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured I will not be followed in the store. Uh, I can 
I'm never asked to speak for all the people in my racial group. <laughs> Things like that. And this is a privilege that, that we, we have. It's something we didn't earn. And it's, it's not that we're bad people in any way, but just we perpetuate that privilege. And I think Dr. Johnson talks about race not being biological. We know mm. it's, it has nothing to do with biology. It's a social construct. And there's a clip that really talks about that. And now would be a good time to play it. Okay, let's hear that clip. The idea of whiteness is not only socially constructed, made up, but it is only a few hundred years old. Europeans had extensive contact with people in, in uh, Africa, for example, uh, long before they ever started thinking of them as having physical differences that had any significance. It was only when Europeans started going to Africa and kidnapping and enslaving huge numbers of Africans. That was when, if you look at writings, diaries, journeys, journals, and so on, that is when superiority and inferiority became linked with the physical differences. And racism, as its practice in this country, became located in the body itself, capable of being transmitted from one generation to another. The same thing happened in North America. Uh, when uh, Europeans first came here, uh, they were often astonished by the Native Americans they encountered because they were so healthy, tall, friendly, clean. They wanted to be them. Jefferson wrote admiringly about Native Americans, as in many ways being of a superior culture. It was only when Native Americans started to actively resist Europeans wanting to take their land that suddenly they became savages, subhumans, not like us. Thank you. Um, th you're listening to Talk of the Towns um, here on WERU. Um, that was a talk um, at a recent conference um, by Maine Community Foundation by Alan Johnson, author of Privilege, Power, and Difference. Um, you're, as you said, you're tuned to WERU and Talk of the Towns. We'll open up our phone lines now, 1-866-625-9378. If you'd like to participate in our conversation with Steve Rowe, president of Maine Community Foundation, and Becky Hayes-Buber, Vice President for Community Impact. Steve, why did you choose um, uh, Mr. Johnson, Dr. Johnson, to, to come and speak to Maine people? Well, I had asked Dr. Johnson to come to New Hampshire and speak to New Hampshire people when I was a president of a foundation over there, and I just found his talk to be uh, very important. It's provocative, but it's very important. Uh, and, and also that his entire speech is on our website, so Great. somebody can, we also, you can, you can download it uh, there too. So I want to make clear that people know not all whites in Maine are, are doing great. I mean, there, there's, this can be an issue. Not all whites enjoy prosperity, not all white people, but you still have this privilege that people of color don't have, and you may not see it, but it's there, and that's what Dr. Johnson talks about. So I had read uh, a book that he had written. Uh, I had talked to others, and, and by the way, when I was in New Hampshire, uh, we polled 25 leaders in communities of color, and we asked them about how is our foundation doing and, and what could we do. And they said, oh, you're doing a good job funding, you know, certain programs that assist communities of color and building leadership and preparing to be on boards of directors, et cetera. But you white people have this thing that only you can deal with. We can't <laughs> fix. It's called white privilege, and it's yours, sure. and you need to talk about it and deal sure. with it. And that's why we're trying to raise this. Uh, you ha first, you have to become aware of something before you know how to how to change it. Mm. But it's holding a lot of people back. And it's not just holding people of color back. It's holding us all back. Mm. Because as we move forward as a state, we're gonna, this state's going to become much more diverse. It already is somewhat diverse. And, and you know, we have to work on this. Mm. Steve, in, when you were attorney general or when, when you were earlier in your career, when did you become kind of more aware of white privilege? 
Well, I think I've seen it throughout my career. I remember as a, a small boy, I, I, I could see racism in certain ways. But, but certainly in the Office of Attorney General, we had civil rights teams in a lot of schools across right. the state. And we really focused on making sure the schools were a safe place where everyone felt comfortable and safe. And we had a lot of racist incidents that, that came in. You know, it's people aren't a lot of people aren't mean people. They don't, but we we do have this 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 privilege, and we have to be thoughtful about it. So, I think I've known, a, like many people, racism most of my life. But I've always I, listen. It's all, there's also sexism. I'm you and I uh, are probably are t- too lucky. We're both kind of white men that right. are relatively tall. Right. I mean, right. we've got a lot of advantages sure. in our society. Sure. So there's sexism, racism, but we've got to really deal with, with this issue in our state. Mm. Uh, Becky, as you think about this and the other uh, five goals, um, you're leading some of the, the efforts to bring people together to to talk about these issues and, and make the difference that makes the difference. I, I think Marion mm-hmm. Kane was the, the predecessor for Steve, and, and, and she always talked about that. What's right. the difference we can make that makes the biggest difference? And you're involved in, in that. Um, um, any hints so far as, as to what those strategies might look like? Um, how might uh, local organizations begin to think about that, uh, some of these goals in those terms? Well, obviously, we want to help support the things that are working really well. Um, but we also, I have to be very clear that we haven't finalized our strategic plan okay. or our theories of change, as we call it, uh, because we really want to get a lot of input from people all over who know more about some of this stuff than we do um, and who are have life experiences around these five goals. And so we are currently um, interviewing a lot of folks. We are doing some focus groups and some uh, surveys, and we'll be bringing all of that information back, as well as the experiences that we've already had through grant making and other um, convenings and collaborations we're engaged in, and then developing, you know, what are the things, the leverage points where if we move this a little bit, the whole system can improve. And um, so we're in that process right now. We are anticipating that we'll have a, a draft of our strategic plan ready for um, uh, our program committee of the board to look at um, in very early May, mm. and then we'll be rolling it out over the summer. Mm. But we're very excited about, you know, really taking this pause and looking at what does the research say is most effective? Do we have that already going in Maine? How do we support that? Um, how do we build even stronger collaborations and partnerships? And what would be the unique role that we as a foundation can be playing in partnership with others? Mm, because you, you're not providing the direct services. You've got to, to find those people who are providing that kind of de- direct connection. And mm-hmm. that's the difference that you make. The biggest difference is to figure out who are, who's most effective. Right. Yeah. Often I think because we work across so many different topic areas and throughout the state we have kind of an eagle's eye view and so we can start to see patterns of things that are happening both good and bad Mm. and um, you know so it's being able to analyze that kind of perspective that can make a difference then 
and that we can take back um, to the more local level mm-hmm. and, and be in partnership with people there. Steve, what would what would you say about some of the others? You mentioned the the, the uh, goal around uh, kind of institutional racism and mm-hmm. br- breaking that down. Um, I'm fascinated with the, the notion of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. um, and and how we how we tackle that. Um, have you, when you were out there listening, what, what what were some of the things you heard more about that particular topic? Well, there, there needs, as I mentioned, there are some infrastructure needs uh, in rural areas, certain parts like in Piscataquis County and Washington County and other places around the state. People don't have access to high-speed broadband Internet access. Or if you have that, you don't have cell phone service at the same time. <laughs> there are just a lot of, lot of issues around technology uh, is one. Another is access to patient capital. Uh, for a lot yeah. of entrepreneurs, tell uh, us about that. Well, I'm it's not just sure if, everybody if, I, knows. if I can get a loan, I, I pay back in two years. Th- that won't work for me. Uh-huh. I need something that I can pay back in seven years. Uh-huh. Uh, I need a lower interest rate. Uh, we we we're working on that. The other one, the other thing is technical assistance. We have a lot a lot of entrepreneurs, but they'd like to start a business, but they need some help. And uh, we fund programs in all these areas, and we'll continue to. Uh, we have a program we call Impact Investing, and we focused in particular in, in food, food farming, fisheries, uh, and, uh, and we'll continue that. We believe the natural resource – I think everybody I talk to believes natural resource-based industries are, have been a big part of our past, but they will also be a big part of our future. But we have to find other ways, other value-added uh, uh, processes – like a tree, right? I mean, mm-hmm. paper and 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 uh, and wood. You know, lumber are not the only things, and we all know about the nanofiber technology research that's going on at University of Maine. But we have to continue to focus on those things. So, one of the things we can do is we can provide the help fund the technical assistance. We can help fund low interest patient loans, maybe loan guarantee programs, maybe even some equity investments going forward. Uh, but we really need to to support uh, entrepreneurs in this state. I don't think the, the the jobs aren't going to come on trucks from away. These jobs are going to be created here in Maine. Mm-hmm. And what we have to do is build those jobs out and, and make sure that we don't just export ideas, but we use those ideas to manufacture things in the state of Maine. There's a lot going on now, Ron, as you well know, but, but more could be happening. And so entrepreneurial innovation, those are really important words, and we're going to really be trying to focus on that you know, with our partners in the future. 469-0500 or 1-866-625-9378 puts you into our conversation about higher quality of life for Maine people, the work of Maine Community Foundation here on WERU and Talk of the Towns. Um, the uh, the uh, notion of uh, partnering um, mm-hmm. seems to be a really important theme. Uh, have you got some examples, uh, Becky, that you are, you know, you've kind of learned about um, partnerships that you're proud of um, oh. in terms of doing some of this work? Absolutely. I think I'd uh, be hard-pressed to do justice to this uh, question because there's there are so many examples sure. that I could share. Um, actually, we have seven grant-making staff and two education staff who are out partnering with groups across the state all the time. You know, they know the counties that they are assigned to. They know um, they know what's going on out there. And they're always looking to find out new things that are going on. Um, I think one example I mentioned earlier, and that's the fact that 
um, it's become a national model, and everybody calls us and says, how did you make that happen? And that's the tri-state learning community on aging that I mentioned. Um, it started, we had a lot of things going on here in Maine with the Maine Aging Initiative, and, um, and I mentioned the age-friendly communities and other initiatives. And um, then um, our colleagues from New Hampshire called and said, we want in on that as well. And as we started talking about, well, how could we do this cross-state partnership, we realized there were a lot of things going on in Vermont that we wanted to learn about as well. And so we, a whole group of us got together and talked about so how, what would be the one thing we could do that would really help, you know, just move this along? Because we know there are a lot of people in local communities doing programs such as a morning call-in, where someone who might be a shut-in calls into their local police station every morning. And if the police don't hear from them, they try to call them. Or if they still can't reach them, they go out to check on them. So um, we decided that by creating this learning community that has monthly webinars um, and all kinds of technical assistance and other interactions across the states uh, would be very helpful. And then we went to uh, various funders. We as funders went to other funders and said, do you want to be a part of this? And I don't think we got a no at all. Um, and so that is that is working. And now, as I mentioned earlier, we have some national groups who are looking at this model to say, could we spread that outside of a region? Mm. We've already had other states come to us and say, can we be part of that too? And so, so that's just one one example. Um, so the, 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 the notion that seems to me is that you're speeding up the level of learning or the, 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 the process exactly. of learning. If you think back to um, days when there were um, 1800s, early 1900s, mm -hmm. newspapers were the primary way right. that pe people mm -hmm. might have heard from um, mm -hmm. a county or the next town over. And mm -hmm. we've certainly seen changes in terms of, of the other media. But you're looking at learning in a different kind of way, learning from the practitioners. And then Absolutely. saying, okay, how can, we, how can we make sure everybody knows best practices, it seems like. And, and to add to that, I think one thing we did, we look at these political boundaries. Sometimes these yeah. state boundaries are, are hindrances uh, mm. for innovation, for mm. sharing, for mm. collaboration. Mm. So the three northern New England states got together and said, we have, we, we have our populations are three of the oldest in the country. If you look at our average age, we have some of the highest percentages of people who are 65 in the country. Uh, it gets cold up here. Uh, you know, w we have a lot in common, and we ought to work together. And mm. so we're doing that now. And uh, I think, again, political boundaries can somehow inhibit innovation, creativity, and collaboration. And uh, we said we're not going to let that happen here. So that collaborative was a good example of mm -hmm. that. Picking up on the, the early childhood development, um, yes. again, maybe some examples of what you see is working well in that field and, and how you might begin to think about advancing that. Well, again, as Becky said, we're going to be working over the next several months mm -hmm. in developing sort of this, these strategies that we're going to be investing in with our time and our resources. But we know uh, that it has to be a, a, a two-generation focus. Mm -hmm. it, this is about the parents and the child and, and everyone else. Uh, the parents are the first teachers. Uh, and But those early years are so important, Ron, from, 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 from conception to... Uh, the kindergarten door, uh, and the condition of that child when that child arrives, it's really, I said earlier, it, it really sets a trajectory for lifelong health and learning. 
So we want to work with parents uh, to make sure to try to help relieve some of the stressors that a lot of parents have. Uh, we want to make sure that kids are more stable, uh, that they're not moving around all the time, that they're staying in one school. Uh, we want to make sure they have adequate nutrition, uh, make sure they have, that parents have access to affordable, high-quality child you know, care when they need it. Uh, there are some good examples in Maine now. Uh, one is the Educare Center in Waterville, Maine, which I know you've heard a lot about. There's a group, the Maine Early Learning Investment Group, a group of for-profit business CEOs who are trying to set up a sort of an Educare without the walls in Skowhegan, focusing on that community now. So it's about recognizing early childhood development as a profession. These people who work there are some of the lowest paid in, in the, in, of any professions, mm. yet we expect a lot out of them. But it's because we don't value early education and early childhood development. Uh, so we're going to be looking at that and finding out where we can work with others really to raise awareness about that and also uh, help pr pr provide more funding mm. for that. Mm. Um, so let's look at, um, again, we probably have listeners who have uh, taken advantage of, of grants um, from Maine Community Foundation. Um, they're listening to this. What's, what's, what's your advice? They ought to be um, waiting for, in some ways, waiting for the strategic plan because that will give them some clues. But you've got some grant-making cycles that are happening Absolutely. relatively soon. What should they be kind of, what, what's, what's, what makes a good request um, to one of your county funds, for instance? What are some of the elements of a good request? Okay. Well, first, um, if they have some local data that's really relevant to what their proposed idea is, that's very, very helpful. Um, lots of times we all have good ideas, um, but we may not have taken the time to really do some research about, do we know nationally or even internationally what is considered the best practices in whatever field it is that we're uh, thinking about uh, helping? And start there. Find out what really is already happening in your community. There may be somebody else who's doing something similar. And so if you submit a collaborative uh, grant re uh, proposal, then first of all, that tells us that you know about each other, you're willing to work together, and you're going to go a lot farther that way. Um, you also analyze, if you have partnerships, who does what best? And instead of competing with each other to do the same thing, you um, figure out, well, we're really good at this, but you guys are better at that, or you have resources to be able to do that. So we'll do this component of it, and you do that component. Um, so, And a lot of it is also making certain that you're really reflecting what's important to your local community. Um, so how how would someone uh, demonstrate that 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 notion of local importance? Um, well, talk to people, and in your proposal, reflect that. You know, say if you did a survey, m mention that. Um, if you've been working with the town uh, government, you know, talk about that as well. Um, the other big thing that I always tell people who are applying for grants is actually read the questions <laughs> that are being asked of you and make certain that you answer all of those very clearly. Be clear and concise. I often find that if people are able to really do the elevator speech, they have a very clear idea of what they're going to do and how they're going to accomplish it, with whom, and on what timeline. Sounds like a, an English major talking. <laughs> <laughs> 
but that notion Absolutely. that the notion that you that you um, if you're not the best writer, um, you don't Love need a, a professional else. grant writer per no. se, no. but someone uh-uh. who has really good writing skills can really change. Um, how something is, uh, comes across. As well as, you know, good listening skills is another aspect of it. Are you listening to what people really need? Mm. And are you responding in a way that will meet their needs? Mm. How about the other the other side, Steve? You talked about donor services. Uh, someone comes, perhaps uh, a new resident in Maine, mm-hmm. um, they've had a career, they've got some um, funds that they'd like to kind of give back. How do you, what's the first part of that conversation with someone who comes to Maine Community Foundation? Well, they can they can call us directly and we can meet with them. Uh, we also get a lot of referrals through financial advisors, trust and estate attorneys. Um, but donors can really contribute in three ways uh, through the Maine Community Foundation to really increase quality of life for people in Maine. One is they can create a fund. We, we have donor advice funds, uh, and that's where an individual will transfer money to the Maine Community Foundation. You could take the full tax deduction uh, in that year you, you make the, the donation, but you retain some advisory rights with respect to that money. Hmm. And so each year you can, you can direct it to go to a particular area or a particular nonprofit so you have advisory rights. Uh, you can also set up a scholarship fund. A lot of donors set up scholarship funds, in, in the, often in the name of, of someone. Mm. Uh, and we have over 500 scholarship funds. The second way you can do it, you can donate to an existing fund. Uh, we have the county or regional funds, and indeed a lot of donors c- contribute directly to those funds because they, 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 they want that money to stay in their, in their area, and they know that the people making decisions about grant making are local people. Uh, we have other statewide flexible funds like the Critical Issues Fund that focuses in, you know, it, it's more discretionary. Uh, as we get the strategic plan up and running, we'll build, build other funds that will be related to these different issue areas. Mm. Uh, the third way that a donor can contribute is is really give to the future by making a planned gift in, in your will. And, indeed, a lot of people do that. And when they pass, the, the money will go to the community foundation and set up a fund often in their memory, uh, to fund a particular area or, or can be discretionary. Mm-hmm. So you can set up a fund yourself, you can donate to an existing fund, or you can put the Maine Community Foundation in your will. Great, very concise. That's your elevator speech. Yes. Um, <laughs> but perhaps there are questions from our listeners, one 625 or locally 469-0500, as we continue our conversation with folks from Maine Community Foundation, uh, Steve Rowe, uh, the president, and Becky Hayes uh, Boober. Um, we're in a political climate um, that none of us probably at this table predicted. Um, how do you how do you talk to uh, both uh, grantees who may be s- discouraged, donors who are puzzled or, or confused about um, where we're headed as a society, whether it's the state of Maine or the nation? How, how do you have those kind of conversations in this very difficult time? Steve, how do you, how do you counsel someone or listen to someone? What, what do you do? Well, we're careful because we're completely nonpartisan. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. We're a public foundation. We have a lot of donors who are Republicans, a lot who are Democrats, a yep, lot who are yep. unenrolled. And uh, But, you know, we recognize there are issues facing this state and this nation, and our strategic plan is focused on those issues. Mm-hmm. So I think probably now, as much as any time in the past, uh, there's a, a strong role for philanthropy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, Ron, we you could aggregate all the money of philanthropy, and it would be very tiny compared to the the money we spend as, as governments. Right. And uh, one of the roles, I think, of philanthropy is to is to, is to really help educate policymakers. Mm. And so we fund uh, a program through the Maine Development Foundation that, that works on, on educating le- legislators and others about the major policy issues uh, of the day. 
another tool we have that we haven't engaged in very much, but we may in the future, is public advocacy. Uh, we can advocate for public policies mm -hmm. uh, on behalf of the people of Maine, and there may come a time when we do that. We, we would have our board be involved with that, but that's another tool that we have that we haven't used that often. Mm. Uh, so it's yeah, we you know we're we're uh, as I say we're nonpartisan, but we certainly want to continue to do our work and and be as effective as ever. Well, it sounds like in, in your listening, you anticipated <laughs> at least some of the issues that that are on people's minds, and that's that's the most important thing is that that listening role and then responding to it in some way. Yes. Becky, any, any any feedback that you're getting from um, uh, the local partners and so on in terms of their concerns in this particular time? Well, I think some of them are concerned about the impact it might have on their organizations, mm -hmm. on the work that they do in the communities. But, you know, we're all... Um, kind, generous, smart people. And I think if we really focus on what does my neighbor need? What does my community need? What does my state need? And just do our own little parts uh, to keep moving forward. Um, and, you know, just there's so much to be optimistic about. Mm -hmm. So the, the strategic plan that you're working on, you hope will be um, available in May. Talk a little bit about um, your board, Steve, and who, who makes up your board and, and uh, what role do they play um, in, in the, um, this work? Okay, Ron, we have a, uh, a very active board of directors. There are 17. Well, I'm the 18th, but I'm non-voting. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we have a lot of geographic diversity. We have a person from Kittery Point in the bottom of Maine. We have someone from Caribou. Mm -hmm. Actually, we have somebody from Presque Island Caribou. So we uh -huh. have two Aroostook folks on our board and all points in between. And uh, we also have diversity in gender, race, ethnicity. One thing they all have in common, all the board members, is, is a commitment to serve the public. And uh, the board's role is one, like in most boards of, of nonprofit organizations, is one of governments and governance and oversight. Uh, they develop and, and oversee the carrying out of our, our mission and our implementation of our policies, our strategic plan, our budget, our grant making, and our, and, uh, and our operating plan. Uh, I would point out that our board was very involved in the development of, of these five strategic goals. We mm -hmm. work with them very careful, carefully. We had an ad hoc strategic planning committee of the board that worked with the staff. Uh, so our board's very involved, and we're just very fortunate to have such uh, active, knowledgeable, and committed people mm -hmm. serving. Mm -hmm. And are they helping to raise the funds? Do they have a, a fundraising role as well as an oversight role? Well, we, we try to prepare them to be ambassadors mm -hmm. uh, of the... And we to be able to tell we, the story. We, give them, we, we hope they can do the elevator speech. Mm -hmm. uh, they all contribute themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know they do, mm -hmm. uh, to the foundation. Uh, so, yeah, they're ambassadors, uh, just like our county advisors are ambassadors. Uh, we have over 500 people across the state that volunteer with us all the time. So when we talk about the Maine Community Foundation, it's not just a few people in Ellsworth, Maine. Uh, it's people all over the state. And by the way, our home office is in Ellsworth, if your listeners don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, we have about 20 people in Ellsworth. That was where we were started, well, MDI, but certainly in Hancock mm -hmm. County. And we have another office in Portland. We have about 12 people. We have a person in Presque Isle and a person in Dover Foxcroft. Mm -hmm. And we have a part-time investment person in, uh, who oversees the work in New York City with our investments. But I always say we have... Uh, our, our home office is in um, Ellsworth. We also have a home office in Dover, Foxcroft, and Prescott because people work out of their homes. Mm. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Do you, you know, I think um, over the years people have asked, "Well, why, you know, why Ellsworth?" And mm -hmm. and we know the story that started Mount Desert Island. Is, do you think that makes a difference in, in how the community foundation functions? If it had been started in Portland, would it be the same community foundation it is now? What do you think? No, it would not have been. Mm. Um, 
a lot of the donor base is from Hancock County, <clears throat> a lot of the donor base is from Cumberland County too, and, and other counties, but those two counties are very significant. But I think we need, a, we need to maintain our presence here. Um, uh, and we've been here for since, you know, 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I know there's been some talk about consolidating to one location, but this is good because we have both uh, development people and we have uh, program people in those locations, they cover different parts of the state. Mm. So mm. I think we'll probably, at least for the the future, I can foresee uh, stay in Ellsworth mm-hmm. as our be our home office. And and you've just had a, a recent staff retreat. Any highlights that you know what what stood out from from your you're relatively new in terms of your positions. What what stood out in terms of that that staff retreat and and what you gained from that. Um, I every day I go in and I'm just amazed at the wonderful, very very professional people we have uh, working there and how connected they are and respected they are in the community, um, and you know so again it's those connections that make a difference. We say fundraising is important, but also friend raising mm. is just as important. Mm. And as we close, I realize that we're we're running out of time. Uh, a short story or a vignette that really illustrates. Um, uh, you know what, what you're proudest of in terms of Maine Community Foundation, Steve. Well, a quick story. I, quickly, we have a loan program that makes uh, patient low-interest loans to entrepreneurs and to organizations, uh, and it's used for agricultural fisheries-related uh, uh, initiatives. It's part of what we call the Impact Investing Initiative. And last week, year, we made a loan to the fair we, through the Fair Food Fund uh, to the Van Buren Food Processing Business. It was known as Northern Girls in Van Buren, mm, Maine, yes. up near yep. Prescott. Uh, the business is owned by two sisters, uh, Leah and Marotta Cook, and their business partner, Chris. Uh, Jim, Jim Cook, their dad, was a classmate of mine okay, at Orange. You know, oh, you know, yeah. good. Yeah. Well, well I, Leah and Marotta do a great job. And Chris uh, Wall Weaver is another, is their partner. But anyhow, Northern Girl is in an effort to help rebuild Maine's uh, lost food processing infrastructure. And the company processes and distributes vegetables like uh, a lot of root crops, carrots, turnips, potatoes from rustic farms, direct to the retail stores and to institutions across New England. Well, the loan we made was to help Northern Girl purchase a large freezer so they could uh, flash freeze vegetables. And soon after that freezer was installed, Northern Girl got a call from a woman by the name of Dixie Shaw. Well, Dixie directs hunger relief for Catholic uh, charities, Catholic services, Catholic charity services in Rustic County. And it seemed that a farmer had just given uh, Catholic Charities Food Bank some 60,000 pounds of fresh broccoli. <laughs> well, there was no way that much broccoli could be distributed uh, right. through the food pantries before right. it spoiled. So Dixie called up the folks at Northern Girl. Uh, they told her to bring the broccoli on over, and she did. And the broccoli was washed and flash frozen so it could be easily stored for later distribution to low-income seniors, families, through 24 food pantries in Aroostook County. So that's about partners. That's great. Well, we've come, unfortunately, to this end of the hour. Be sure to join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of this program and past programs can be found in in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions, please email it at us at news at weru.org. And tune into our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle, on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Karanak on a Balnane House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio this morning, Steve Rowe, President of Maine Community Foundation, and Becky Hayes-Buber, Vice President for Community Impact. Uh, thanks to Amy Brown for uh, engineering our program. Thanks always to our underwriters, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.
WERU is made possible by the generous